Get Mad with Chris Graves. Hi, welcome back to Get Mad with yours truly. I am Chris Graves. Today is a special day. I have a very, very legendary guest, Mr. John Barber. How are you, John? I'm great, but America is not. <laughs> That's how I am. And I love I love the title of your show, Get Mad. It's like <laughs> Howard Beale from network i'm mad as hell and i'm not gonna take it anymore (laughs) that's right so i'm delighted to be here with you again hey uh, it's always a delay Uh, did you um did you ever uh, get to to talk with anyone that was in the movie network uh yes absolutely oh my god yes and if you go to my site, www.johnbarbersworld.com, one of the greatest speeches ever written about the world we live in was written by Patty Shayefsky. And you might remember the scene because he's the guy that wrote Network. And he calls... Peter Finch. Now, Peter Finch is Howard Beale. Mad as hell, okay? Yeah. And he's number one in America in the ratings because of his rantings. But he has upset the owner of the network. Do you recall this scene when the head of the network calls him into his home, and then invites him into his palatial office that has a table about 30 feet long, and he seats Peter Finch at one end of the table, and he stands at the other end of the table to tell him what the facts of financial life are in the world. Do you remember the name of the actor or the speech? I can't think of it offhand, John. Ah, it's a shame. It is Ned Beatty. Oh, Ned Beatty from Deliverance, right? Yes, absolutely. The the movie that made him famous. But I was fortunate enough when I was doing a Friday night show. It's called Friday Night Live. And very, very recently, I did it for 19 weeks. And very, very recently, a friend of mine found all these live hours that I did that I'd forgotten all about. And they were put up on uh, Facebook. And then my webmaster, a genius named Stu Shostak, who has the only website in America that preserves classic television. And Stu, on my 90th birthday a few weeks ago, did two three-and-a-half-hour shows. They were back-to-back about my 90th birthday. I mean, it was to celebrate my 90th birthday, but my decades in the business and the first three-and-a-half hours was about my film reviews, 
And the second three and a half hours was about my interviews. And one of the best interviews ever was with Ned Beatty. And we did it at his home up in the Hollywood Hills. He was beyond wonderful because he thought he was going to be a minister when he was a kid. And he was absolutely startled. You know, he thought he was going to quit the business or was out of the business a half a dozen times. But after he did network, he was startled that often he would go to the butcher, he'd go to the tailor or the candlestick maker and walk in there and somebody would see him and start repeating word for word that particular speech. And it's a reprimand to Peter Finch. And that when it's over, this classic line, Peter Finch says to him, why are you telling me in this really meek voice? And Ned Beatty leans in and says, because you're on television, stupid. Oh, my God. That is, <laughs> that is the greatest American movie ever made. Because when I went to see it, when I reviewed it, I said it's the only movie ever made in Hollywood that people will go to listen to. And that in the future, the Academy Award for Writing should be called a Patty because of Patty Shyeski. So for me, it it was beyond a thrill to be talking to him. So you get a chance to you go see you go look at that or search Stu Shostak. Um, I, I'll, I'll see if I can send a link to that. So yeah. I, you, so, you, so you can put it up later. So yeah, anyway, that's a very, that's a great question because yeah, that was a great, that was a great interview too. Cause I did actually watch that on John Barber's world on YouTube. I think uh, you may be able to find it there. Uh, yeah, I have it in, it's in two or three places now because it's so, so popular. But uh, the one thing, you will totally love Ned Beatty, not just as an actor, but as a human being. I mean, he was he was a joy. He was a joy to talk to. And so that was a wonderful question for you to ask. You and, also you also interviewed people like Danny Glover, too, I think. That was a great interview, too. And Ricardo Montalban. Well, uh, Danny Glover, I interviewed three times every time I got a show. He would call. I wouldn't have to call him. He would call. Hey, John, can I come back on again? Because, you know, I had talk shows on every station in Los Angeles except Channel 5. So he followed me around. And then Ricardo Montalban, bless his heart. I guess I have to tell you this story because you brought up his name. When I got the show on Channel 9, he was one of the actors who called to come on the show. And the very first thing that you see him say as a guest on the show is he's chuckling and he's laughing. And he's saying, you know, that he just can't believe that, you know, that I'm like the grass in the sidewalk. I keep popping up 
every time I get fired. I mean, he <laughs> he just loved that fact that I was just indestructible in that way. And I told him that I was really, I didn't have the nerve to call him. And he wondered why. And the reason was, I had a lot, I've had hum, uh, humongous questions about all the reviews I did. Was there ever one I regretted? There was never one I regretted. I always said what I felt was in my heart and in my mind. As a matter of fact, people ask me, do you review movies with your mind? Do you review movies with your heart? And I told the public on television, no, I review movies with my ass. Because if my <laughs> ass moves, it tells me there's something wrong with it. And I use my mind to interpret what my ass is telling me. Well, in any event, I saw him in the King of I, King and I, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. It was a stage play, and he he played the king, of course. And I said the performance was, I think, so wooden, you couldn't tell where the stage ended and his body began, or something like that. It was just god-awful, but that's how I felt. Anyway, I get home, and my wife, who was my biggest fan, by the way, she said, honey, you know, you said something maybe you shouldn't have said. She was with me at the play, and she said, the play was okay and the performance is okay, but you went a little overboard with that comment. And I said, what did you mean? And she said, didn't you know that Ricardo Montalban had a wooden leg? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, no. So, you know, I wanted to call and apologize, but I didn't know, I didn't have the guts to call or anything like that. So a couple of years later, I end up on Channel 9, and he calls, and he wants to come on the show. And the ending of the interview is really very cute because he talks about the fact that he hated, that he always had to play this one-dimensional Latin lover. Absolutely hated it. He said his greatest part was he played a villain in one of these Star Wars characters. And by the way, my son was a Star Wars junkie, and that was one of his episodes with Ricardo Montalban. And Ricardo was thrilled to hear that. But when it was over... He said he didn't get a chance to play those kinds of parts. And I said, well, I was thrilled he was here because I w had to apologize. And, and he said, why? So I told him why. And then he smiled really sweetly. He said, John, I know you didn't mean to be hurt me. I said, yes, I did. He said, well, now I'm going to quit being charming. It, and then everybody howled. He was just so wonderful. Anyway, you can find that interview there, too. And it's astonishing. I didn't interview anyone who didn't end up being entirely down-to-earth and gut-wrenchingly true and honest about their life. I mean, anyone, not one of them. So 
You'll find you'll find a lot if you go to my website. You know, there are tons of those interviews, and now you have more uh, on. It's called Friday Night uh, uh, John's Live Friday Night. If you go to YouTube and search them, you will find staggering interviews. And before that, on my uh, a show on Channel 13, when I was on Channel 4 as a critic, I did have a show called the 90-inch variety show in which I interviewed Burt Reynolds and made Brian Gumbel my uh, co-host on that particular show. And I interviewed – and I gave uh, – uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny, who's the guy that sings Gambler, that song, Gambler? Kenny, uh, Kenny, uh, Loggins? Rogers, no, no, Kenny no, Rogers. Uh, oh, Kenny Rogers. Yeah, Kenny Rogers. He was with a group before he became a single. When he broke up with the group, he called to be on my show. He paid him, we paid him $79. I have all these tapes. I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape. I've hey, never. You, I, you had Phyllis Diller too. Uh, that was yeah. She was, yeah, she was on the uh, Friday night show. Uh, uh, she was on with uh, Shelley Berman. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can find because I love comics. I absolutely love comics, and in my book, "Your Mother's Not a, a Virgin," I devote. Now, there are no chapters in my book. My book was designed a little. I don't know if anybody knows who Ben Hecht is. Ben Hecht was the most successful screenwriter in history. He wrote Gone with the Wind in 12 days and never read Margaret Mitchell's book. He just wrote it off of a 30-page outline because Selznick had stopped the production because he didn't like the script. He invented the gangster movie with Scarface, most successful screenwriter in history. As a matter of fact, his is the only fan letter I ever wrote. I was 17 years of age, and I'm a mailboy at Paramount, and I'm in the country illegally. I mean, I was deported a little while later, and then I was deported again in my 20s. I was in Canada, right? Yeah, and I didn't get my citizenship papers until uh, 1977, and they were given to me by Senator John Tunney. But in any event, I picked up Ben Hecht's book uh, because as a male boy, I saw the name Hecht, and I mistakenly thought it was about the guy. Have you ever heard of a company called Hecht Hill Lancaster? Yeah. Okay, well, you, I thought it was about the Hecht in Hecht Hill Lancaster, and it wasn't. It was about his life as a screenwriter, this uh, Jewish kid from Racine, Wisconsin, who ran away to be in the circus when he was six, and he ended up in Chicago as some kind of errand boy for newspapers, ended up being their most prominent columnist and then in New York their most prominent columnist wrote the play The Front Page with Charles MacArthur which again was remade as His Girl Friday with Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell absolutely great and anyway I couldn't put down his book and 
It's the only fan letter I ever wrote, and I remember the very first sentence of it. And I, and because I didn't know who to send it to, I just sent it to his publisher and said, "Please forward." It's written in pencil on yellow paper because I'm a poor kid. I don't have a typewriter, and I said that I picked up this book accidentally, and I'm sorry that I ever did, because unless we find another book by Mark Twain. You have ruined for me anything I will ever read in the future. You know what? <laughs> wow. That is a fucking brilliant line to come from a seventeen-year-old a boy. <laughs> I, mean, I was done. Well, I guess he was impressed by it because two weeks later, I got an eleven-page reply, handwritten also, and he said he was on his way to Laguna Beach. Uh, to the Laguna Beach Playhouse to put on a his one-act play called Winkleberg, and when I come down and be his assistant. So I went to Laguna Beach, and for five days, I was Ben Heck's assistant from my only fan letter, the only fan letter I ever wrote. It's a wonderful, wonderful story in my book. But back to comics. He wrote the best book ever about show business or anyone in show business and it's called the child of the century very expensive now and he has no chapters they're not really called chapters because he was a columnist in both chicago and new york all the articles are like columns they're headlines. that's how i designed my book and there are a couple of columns in my book about Almost every comic you can name, I do a page about them because of the insights that I had with them because I was always in their company when I was a struggling comedian. And I I spent three days at the request of Lenny Bruce in San Francisco with Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Uh, walking the streets of San Francisco, and uh, who is Rodney Dangerfield? You got George, George Carlin, too, in there. Yeah, I have a couple of great stories about how I beat George Carlin out for parts and television. Uh, but uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield had quit being a comic, and I was on the Merv Griffin show, the day that he decided to make a comeback. I was on it, and he was on it. And I remember his opening line. He said, "Um, I quit show business. He says, but I'm the only one who knows it. Well, that is so funny. (laughs) So afterwards, I went over and told them that. He laughed, and he said, hey, listen, I, I'm at a comedy club downtown, and I'm the MC at the comedy club. She said, I'd love you to come down and do a set or just watch me at work or watch the comics. I love comics. So I went down there every night for about two weeks. He was better than George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and angrier than Peter Finch on stage. I mean, he was more... Cutting than Don Rickles. I mean, he was savage. 
And so I remember going into his dressing room and telling him all of this and telling him he could fill Carnegie Hall. And I said, why is it that you do this thing about I get no respect like you're a weakling? And he chuckled and he said, John, the audience always has to feel superior to the performer. He said, that's why blacks were successful and Italians were successful and Jews were successful because the mostly wasp audience always felt superior. And he said, and I like to work. So it's always, I get no respect. And he was so right about that. And it's too bad that some of those tapes of him are not around because he he ranks up there with Bill Hicks. To me, the greatest comedian America ever produced is Bill Hicks. Oh, yeah. He is the only comedian who had the intellect, the talent, and the courage to do jokes about the assassination of John Kennedy. And I'm so proud of the fact that I stuck a couple of his lines in my second documentary about Jim Garrison's solved sabotage case. Uh, it's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So I'm very proud of that. So anyway, I don't know how we got onto all of this, but there you go. Well, you were just about to mention how you uh, you lost out. So, uh, uh, actually, George uh, Carlin lost out some parts to you, right? Uh, well, I, uh, yes, but I'll tell you one of them. Um, great country singer, King of the Road. Do you know who's wrote? Uh, what's his name? Rogers was his name. Rogers, the oh, guy who uh, Kenny, Kenny Rogers. No, it wasn't Kenny Rogers. I forget. The guy who wrote King of the Road, it was a monster hit. Yeah, I remember the song. Okay, okay. In any event, um, it's uh, the Smothers Brothers had a smash show on CBS. Yeah. And they were going to take a summer break. And they were going to fill that hour with the guy that wrote King of the Road. Maybe while we're talking, Chuck and research who did it. A very, very nice guy. A very, very talented guy. So in any event, they were uh, uh, auditioning uh, some comics to be guests on the show. And uh, in the in the studio where they audition, they just have the staff. They have the crew and they have the staff, so there's, so there's no audience. And... Two of the guys called are George Carlin and myself. And George Carlin does the hippy-dippy weatherman. This is before he started doing shit that was important. And it was cute. It was okay. And he got a couple of chuckles because he'd been on television a half a dozen times and people had already seen it. Yeah. Well, I wrote an absolutely brilliant original piece about how Ed Sullivan actually got his job at CBS. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into 
it now. I've never uh, performed it since, but the tagline got thunderous applause from the crew, and, the, and they laughed at everything. And they chose Carlin to be on the show rather than me. And when I called uh, my uh, agent, my agent turned out to be uh, the manager, Howard West, turned out to be Howard West and George Shapiro turned out to be the uh, manager of Steinfeld or Seinfeld or whatever. His and, name. and Andy Kaufman, too, George yeah, Shapiro. Andy Co- yeah, so in any event, I said, hey, you heard how much they loved me. And he said, one of the writers and co-producers is some fucking guitar player who wrote a song called Classical Gas. And he hated me. He resented me for some reason. And, you know, it brings me back. Those kind of things bring me back when I got started as a stand-up. I got started in the club called The Horn on Santa Monica Boulevard uh, uh, near the uh, Pacific Palisades and the Pacific Ocean in Los Angeles. Yeah. And two of my biggest fans were the head writer, Mort Lockman, and his partner, Bill Larkin, of Bob Hope. I had the apartment upstairs. They had the apartment downstairs. And I was working as a waiter in an Indonesian restaurant, okay? <laughs> but I wanted to be a comic. Yeah. And I talked, would talk to them, and they would love the stuff I wrote. And uh, Mort Lockman said to me, he said, John, listen to me. If you write one funny line a year, a, a day, you have 365 funny lines and he said, that's 320 funny lines, more than any comic on the air in America now, including my boss, Bob Hope. So you just put together, you know, put together a few weeks, sent just a funny line every day, which I did. And my very first line, and what I did is I got all the comedy albums I got Bob Newhart because people told me I resembled Bob Newhart. I got Shelley Berman. I got Mort Saul. I got Lenny Bruce. I got Robin Williams. I got Red Fox. I got every comic who made an album. But they had a personality and a distinctive style. I had no personality. And I had no style. (laughs) I mean, so what did I have? I was just from Canada, and I'm just an ordinary wasp, for God's sake. (laughs) So I thought about that, and I thought the only thing I could do is, I said, and then I went to the library, and I got a dozen of the greatest joke books. And I thought, well, I'll steal some jokes from these joke books, and I'll put five minutes together and try to find a gig. But there were only a half a dozen funny lines, but everybody in the world knew them, and the others were just unfunny. And I thought, God, I can write better stuff than that. Now, I'm in my early 30s. I don't even know I can write. I mean, like the opening line that I wrote to Ben Hecht, I still treasure to this day. I'm astonished it came out of me. 
And I sat down and I wrote five minutes in five minutes in the opening line. Hi, my name is John Barber and I'm being brought to you through the Curtis of the NAACP. <laughs> the National Association of the Advancement of Canadian People. And they howled because it was at the height of the black power stuff in this country. And the rest just flowed. So I went down to the horn. I auditioned. I was the only comic they ever put on because the owner, who was a retired opera bass singer, uh, did not like comics, but for some reason, when he had me audition in front of his audience and I was a hit, he thought he'd hire me. And then Mort Lockman said to me, you'll be working with one of the funniest guys you'll ever see. Uh, not that you're not going to be funny, John, but this guy's even funnier. He's this hill, hillbilly from the Ozarks, tells these really funny stories about, you know, bootlegging booze and, you know, stuff like that. And then he asked the audience if he could sing this little, di- could I sing this little ditty that I really like? And they all <laughs> applaud and cheer because they know what it's going to be and what it is. It is Nassim Dorma, and he sounds like Pavarotti. It's Jim Neighbors. <laughs> wow. And Jim Neighbors becomes my biggest fan. But when he let, and whenever I was in the club around at, after I started to get work, in, and he started working on television, uh, God, who was the guy that he was? Uh, he was Gomer Pyle. Yeah, he was. He became Gomer Pyle. But who was the guy? Oh, Andy oh, Griffith. Andy Griffith, the face in the crowd, one of another great American movie. Anyway, when he left to start doing Gomer Pyle, he called me aside. He said, "John, I ain't been in this town too long, and one of the things that happened to me is I've really been lucky." And I don't know how lucky you're going to be, but I can, and I don't like to give advice, but I've made this one observation about the people in this here town, and that is it's better to be liked than it is to be talented. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons that maybe this guitar playing asshole who wrote classical gas you'll know his name he was very famous resented me was the fact i had talent because before real people got on the air i had an interview with maury gelman at the daily variety and i said this unknown canadian is going to change the face of american television with what i call the entertainment of reality because real people are a whole lot more interesting than movie stars. Well, everybody thought, this asshole, this arrogant asshole, what is, who, well, who does he think he is? So in a follow-up interview, they asked me that question. And I said, you know, there are a thousand Xerox machines in this town, but only five original typewriters. And I own one of them. Now, how arrogant am I or how confident am I, unemployed, to be able to say that to the business that I want to become successful in? 
But, you know, I never wanted to be a star. And I wasn't looking for fame. I was looking for fortune. I was looking for myself. Because, you know, um, Mark Twain once said, the two greatest days in your life are the day you're born and the day you discover it. Why? Well, I didn't discover why until I accidentally saw the Jaguar show. Until you met Mason Williams, right? Is that the, is that uh, the that guy's name, Mason Williams? So who was the singer who uh, wrote King of the Road? Oh, my God. It's a great song. He had a couple of other hits, too. Oh, yeah. anyway, have Chuck sort of find that. But that that's the show. And so in any event, I, I just forgot. Where I was. Roger Miller. I, yeah. Yeah, Roger Miller. Oh, my God, what a nice man. Oh, my God. As a matter of fact, when I finished, I have half a mind to do the routine about how Ed Sullivan got his job. But since so few people know Ed Sullivan anymore. But it was hilarious. Ordinarily, I never did routines. I always did one-liners. But I love Lenny Bruce because Lenny did, Bruce did nothing but routines. And so this is this was a, a routine. I never recorded it and I never did it. But if I came across an audience of 70-year-olds who would remember Ed Sullivan, I might, re, I might bring it back because it is brilliant and it is hilarious. Even though it's obvious, so anyway. yeah, I, rem- I remember Ed Sullivan. Does that count? <laughs> no, that 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 doesn't quite count. But you know what? I may I may do I may put that up on on YouTube and yeah. tell the story of how I was better than George Carlin, but not booked. Because <laughs> people who know George remember that he did the hippy dippy weatherman, but then he evolved into this brilliant uh, uh, concert filling comedian. I mean, he was right up there with, well, it was not quite as good as Lenny Bruce, but Lenny, sadly, I mean, he, uh, when I saw him, uh, he was at, I think, a place called the Blue Note in San Francisco. And my wife was very good friends with the owner of the Blue Note. So she knew I was a big fan. And my wife and I were very close to Sally, who was Lenny's mother. We were always at her place, and she always came to my shows. and She was a huge fan. So um, after uh, Lenny did his act and it was mostly about his trial in Chicago and it wasn't funny he's up there for an hour and it's not funny yeah wasn't he reading transcripts from the trial at one point yeah exactly so in any event he gets off and he comes over and he uh, says hello to me and uh, Sarita and then he asks uh, if I would mind taking a walk with them. And I said, with my wife. And he looked and he said, she's gorgeous, but I want to talk to you. 
And my wife says, honey, I'll go home. I'll go home. So my wife, my wife's parents lived in San Francisco. And I was just sort of dating her at the time, even though we were living together in L.A. So we walked the streets for about an hour and a half. He told me he regretted his whole life. He said, I don't own a car. I don't own my home. I don't have a bank account. I don't have anything. If I had to do it over again, I'd have to do it differently. And then he told me that he was going to be booked into this place, a a huge place, a barn in Huntington Beach called the Golden Bear, where I worked out, where I performed. Wonderful place with sawdust on the floor. And he said, before I go, he said, it's not till next week would you come by the house because there's some things I want to show you. So I said, I'd be happy to. So I brought Sarita, of course, and he was thrilled to see Sarita. His house, though outside of the house, the stucco was peeling. Inside the house was worse. It looked like a garbage pit. He had tapes all over the floor and a couple of record players. So we get in there. And the first, and there's a pizza box there. And he said, uh, would you guys like a Diet Coke or a pizza or something? And my wife said, uh, no, Lenny, thank you very much. And I said, are you kidding? I said, if you went into a restaurant like this, would you eat a pizza? Well, he started to howl, and my wife slapped me. She said, don't you talk to him like that. He said, that's why I love your husband. She, he says, I don't even know him, and yet I feel I have an affinity for him because I've seen him on television. He's gentle and he's quiet, but he's funny, and I loved It's Tough to Be White. His album is just so good. So he said, here's some of the stuff that I've written that I want to do at the Golden Bear. So he plays it, and it's more transcript stuff. And then I said, hold it. This is more Chicago stuff, and it's more the Blue Note stuff in San Francisco. How about those great routines about the reason the Lone Ranger never stops to say hello? Or... A planted bomb on an airplane or how to make black people feel comfortable at a party. I mean, those things are beyond brilliant, Lenny. He said, but they're old. I said, hold it a second. If you find a gold nugget that's been buried in the mountains for 10,000 years, it still is worth gold. And your stuff is comedic golden nuggets, for God's sake. He said, but this stuff is interesting because what killed me is they had a cop doing my act, and I wanted to do my own act. I said, okay, that's in Chicago. You're going to the Golden Bear. God damn it, I said, if I want to hear shit about trials, I'll read The Merchant of Venice, for God's sake. (laughs) he screamed he said okay okay will you and Sarita come 
I said, only if you promise to do that. Otherwise, I'll get up and go out because it's heartbreaking for me. You're one of my fucking idols and you're not funny when you're in court. Oh, my God. My wife was really upset. So we left. The week later, we go down and uh, it's right by the ocean. It's a big barn. You could park planes in the place and it's sold out. And it says, uh, one night only, Lenny Bruce. And we walk in. It's packed. It's standing room only. And there's only the stage off in the corner, this wooden stage. It's not very big. And it's about eight feet off the ground because you have to be able to see it from 25 or 30, 40 yards away. So we go immediately to the dressing room and it's packed. But Lenny sees us, so we put up our thumbs. My wife blows a kiss. He raises his thumb. He says, see you later. Then he goes on stage. His 45 minutes turned into a standing room only ovation. And the ovation wasn't at the end. It was often in the middle. That's how brilliant and talented this guy was. So afterwards, we go backstage. We can't, we can't even, we can't even see him. He's so busy. He just waves. And then my wife and I go three days later, he's found dead in his bathroom with a needle stuck in his arm. Yeah. And that needle, I assure you, he did not stick in his arm and it is so shameful that the los angeles times put that picture on the front page because for five to seven years the entire catholic establishment in this country and the political establishment in washington was trying to deny a performer's lessons license to Lenny Bruce and they succeeded in New York and they succeeded in Chicago and I think quite honestly he did not off himself it was heartbreaking and that story uh, uh, in fuller detail is also in my book in the section about uh, comics um, your, mother's, your mother's not a virgin and John, who, who do, you, do you have any thoughts on who may have done that to? Oh, you know, I never speculate on anything, honest to God. Um, when I interviewed Jim Garrison, September 5th, 1981, isn't that remarkable? It's, you know, a lot of people remember November 22nd, 1963, yeah. where they were when Kennedy was shot. I remember where I was. I was, uh, writing jokes in a friend's apartment who was on the phone. His name was Bob Klein. He, you, you've heard of a horse whisperer? Yes. He was a woman whisperer. <laughs> he could be on the phone and get women to do anything. I mean, women would show <laughs> up in a fur coat and that was all. And he tried to teach me how to do it. I could never learn. But that's when the news came about uh, Kennedy 
When you say Bob Klein, are you talking about Robert Klein? No, not the comic. Oh, okay. No, no, that's not not the comic. But Robert Klein used to work out at the Ice House with me, with Steve Martin and a couple of other guys. Yeah. In any event, I was booked to go back into the Hungry Eye, which was my going to be the Hungry Eye was my second professional performance, and I was so successful they booked me back for late November. But I go back in couple of days after Kennedy was murdered. And then I had to change my whole act. But what I, what was I trying to get to about? Oh, oh the well, day. I was asking about Lenny September, Bruce. Hold it, September 5th, 1983. Uh, when I was interviewing Garrison, I interviewed him on camera for three and a half hours. And everyone's but I talked to him for another six hours. Because every once in a while, he would say, John, I never speculate. He said, but there are a couple of things I'd like to talk to you about, because you seem to be the only one I've run across who really wants to tell the story of John Kennedy's murder honestly. Oh, my God, isn't that a nice thing to say to me? I mean, that he chose me over Oliver Stone? Yeah. There are reasons why, but in any event, he said, I want you to turn off your camera. I want you to turn off your microphones because I'm going to tell you who I thought. He said, there's no question it was Alan Dulles who engineered uh, and was the architect of the physical activities surrounding on how to kill Kennedy. But he was just an employee. And I said, hold it. The uh, the Dulles brothers, I think, lent a half a billion dollars to Hitler during the 30s. Weren't they involved with some kind yes. of bank? That's yes, not some kind of employee. He said, John, believe me, there are about six to ten families that own this country. They're the ones that own the Federal Reserve. There's no such thing as a Federal Reserve. It's owned by six private families, okay? He said, and maybe one of the owners of these families, one of the rulers, the 12 ruling families, is the person who gave the green light to Alan Dulles to off John Kennedy. And he told me, and then he told me the the reasons why. And then he also told me about Tippett or so, but he would never speculate. Uh, but when, at one point, I said to him, and I'm so glad I was on camera at this point, I said, if you were the attorney general of the United States, he said there are a lot of people running around right now who are involved with the, in the assassination. And they should be arrested. And I said, well, if you were the attorney general of the United States, who would you arrest? And right off the bat, the first two names he said are Lawrence V. Myers and Fred Chrisman. I had never heard them. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, Lawrence V. Myers, to find out, and then he says to me, and I said, why him? He said, because he's the guy that gave Ruby the orders to shoot Oswald. And holy smoke. And then he explained it all. And it was so simple. What he had done is he gathered all the phone records from 
like August through November of David Ferry and Clay Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. And they all ended up having one telephone number in common in Chicago. The girl's last name was a C, I think. And she was the mistress to Lawrence B. Myers. And then in the Warren report, right there is Lawrence B. Myers meeting with Jack Ruby the day before at the Companion Nightclub or whatever it's called. And it's, he said it's so obvious. It's simple CF, CSI detective work. And he turned all of this over to the CIA. Now we have in the last couple of days, so a lot of people sort of applauding the fact that a few more files have been released by the CIA. Yeah, I saw that. It's all a bunch of total bullshit. First of all, uh, you ever heard of a guy named Thomas uh, Jefferson Morley? Jefferson Morley, yes, yes, I am. Okay, so I do not know why Jefferson Morley has never offended me on Facebook or promoted my movie or even bought my book. But I'm a fan of his because about 10 years ago, he uh, sued the CIA because Jim Garrison, in the middle of his investigation, when he discovered who the shooters are, who the planners are, everything, 67 boxes of files, he turned them all over to the CIA. I happen to have a copy of them, by the way. But in any in any event, Jefferson Morley sued. It went through the courts and five years ago ended up in the courts in Washington, D.C. And uh, the problem is the Warren Commission files won't be released supposedly until the year 2037. But you won't see the garrison files for 25 years after that. And the reason is because they expose absolutely everything. And Jefferson Morley was suing to get garrison's files, which the CIA had no right to own. They belong to the people in Louisiana and therefore should be made public to the United States of America. And the judge ruled in favor of the CIA never to release the garrison files. And guess who that judge was? I'm not sure. Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, Kavanaugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is another one of these appointments by Trump. Yeah. To the Supreme Court? I mean, the Supreme Court. Oh, my God. The Supreme Court the has got to go. It is yeah. the most degenerate criminal collection of humans in America since 1776. I mean, it's a total, total embarrassment. They're so out of touch with this country. When what I would suggest, I did five years ago. Uh, you know what? 
I don't talk about politicians anymore. I'm through with all of them. But quite by accident, and, you know, I thought maybe you'd ask me about the heat here. It's been, how's, it's the been, heat, how's the heat, John? <laughs> I'm burning it's been right now. 10 days of 114 degrees. You have trees begging dogs to piss on them. <laughs> I mean, it, the air is so smoggy and overcast and this heat so intense. It's like sucking on America's exhaust pipe. It yeah, is I'm like hell. Right it, it is, so is like hell. Hey, it's like hell on earth, and the only thing missing is fire and brimstone. Except two days ago, Trump was here. So I posted to paraphrase Shakespeare, hell is empty because one of the devils was here. Okay. So, and it's fine. Oh, well, I got, not only, I got a few angry males and i got a couple of great ones but there's this lady in serbia who's one of serbia's most respected intellect she's 37 years of age she writes about philosophy and history she wrote the magnificent review i have ever read about anything and it was about my book or not my book carol haney who wrote uh about my 10 years as a film critic. If you go to my Facebook page and read her essay, it's not just a critique, it's an essay. And in my comment, I say, no person, living or dead, could write this brilliantly about films or America. It's more than a review, it's an essay. Not even Mark Twain, who used to be a critic, or Pauline Kael. Well, anyway, she stumbled across a YouTube that I did five years ago. And it's called Why Do People Love Trump? And it was inspired by uh, Woodward and uh, Rachel Maddow, the lesbian who's highly paid on MSNBC. Yeah. Talks about being a lesbian and her partner. I'm not calling her a lesbian. She is telling everybody in the world she's a lesbian. Anyway, Trump made the brutal mistake of doing about 18 to 20 hours of telephone interviews with uh, Woodward, who used to be naval intelligence, by the way. And he and his partner brought down Nixon with one book, All the President's Men. Now there's enough material for 10 books. But after every interview, he would go on Rachel Maddow's show and, and say, if you listen to the words of his, the man from his own mouth, you wonder how on earth anybody could ever like him, let alone 72 million. And she would agree. And they did this for a week. And one day I was watching. And one talent that I have that I'm proudest of is that I can get to see the obvious. And I've been that since I was six. Now, that sounds arrogant. You'd think everybody could see it, but they can't. When I was six in, the, in class, they were reading the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, but the emperor has no clothes. And uh, everybody loved it. The teacher loved it. So I put up my hand. 
And I say Miss English, that was her name. If the emperor has no clothes, shouldn't he be arrested for indecent exposure? Well, the teacher boos me. So when she boos me, the class boos me. But it's so obvious. I didn't get to use that line until uh, Frank Sinatra had me on as a guest on uh, The Tonight Show when it got a, it got an ovation. But I figured out, listen to me, I figured out why. Factually, now, I never, I never do conjecture and I never offer opinion. But in 19 minutes, I give you irrefutable facts about Donald Trump that are both funny and true and angering. But at the end, I'll tell you why I say that folks still love him because, you know, he said I could kill somebody or shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for me. Yes. Anyway, this lady in Serbia, whose name's Alexandra, she found it. She thought it was one of the most brilliant pieces of history, not about Trump. But a history that she'd ever read. And she was sharing it all over Europe. What she's doing right now as you and I speak. So anyway, if you get a chance, you go to, because she, she even reposted it on my Facebook. You go to my, John Barber's Facebook, even though it's five years old, because what I say is that in 2024, he is going to be the Hindenburg, and Biden's going to be <laughs> the Titanic, and you don't want to be on board anyone. So this is what you should know about the Hindenburg, who is Trump. And if I were in a position like Joe Rogan, who had millions of followers, or when I had the most successful show in the history of television and was the creator and co-host and principal writer and producer of it, if I had that influence, I would urge every American to stay home. Do not even vote for the lesser evil. I mean, Trump only got in because he wasn't Hillary. And uh, Biden only got in because he wasn't Trump. God damn it, stay home. Let them know. I wish we could now talk about the economy since the Writers Guild and the Directors and the uh, Actors Guild has gone on strike, but we won't have time to do that. We'll have to talk about the economy and a bunch of other things, including Bobby uh, Bobby Kennedy's entry into the race in 2024, on which I have a lot of thoughts because of my dealings with him. So that's it for me, for my hour. So you, uh, so before we go, you've had dealings with Bobby Jr. before? Yes. Yes, I did. And I'll talk about it next time. As a matter of fact, hold it. If you get my book, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, there are scores and scores of pages devoted to it because five years ago at the 50th anniversary, George Knapp, 
who was uh, the most successful personality on television in Vegas and who hosts Coast Coast on Sunday night, was going to interview Bobby Kennedy Jr. at the University of Nevada before 1,200 customers, and then we were going to run the garrison tapes. And Bobby Kennedy Jr. backed out at the very last minute, but I am still close friends with a speaking agent at the time named Sean Lawton. Buy the book and read it, because I'm not talking about it now. My hour is done. All right, well, John, uh, can you tell everyone where they can find you and where they can contact you and where they can get your book? Okay, they can get the book on Amazon. It's called... uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. Uh, You can, and if you want, if you want an autographed copy, my email is John Sarita. That's J-O-H-N-S-A-R-I-T-A, John Sarita, at AOL.com. You want an autograph copy only if you're in the United States. You send me $25 and I'll pay the postage and send it. The other thing that you can get for $2 on Amazon is the two hour and 10 minute definitive film on the murder of John Kennedy called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Only $2. And it'll be around long after every book about Kennedy's forgotten and every documentary except this is forgotten. And the only reason for that is it is Jim Garrison telling his story. Jim Garrison, whom they avoid like the plague. I mean, look at Oliver Stone does a worthless documentary. I forget what he calls it. And it's all information, you know. And who does he have as one of the narrators? Fucking Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what a waste of time. She's not only done anything for Kennedy, she never did anything for King, even though the widow of King won a court case proving the government murdered her husband. That's anyway, right. hey, the hour's up. I don't want to keep going. <laughs> I have a bunch of other things that I have to do. So well, this if, there, great, Mr. if there are people who are, geez, I'm starting to sound like Bill Hicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I love them. Oh, my God, do I ever. So, but in any event, I I hope they, those things help you and you can put up a picture of the book, put up a picture of the film and tell people where they can get it. Yeah, we'll put all the They are both, they are both a joy. If you were one of these kinds of people, as I am, who who gets a high on learning something, who gets a a high on inhaling the truth, you will love it. That's the perfect way to go out. Until we we speak again, Barbara. Chris Graves. WallStreetWindow.com 
gold, silver, the stock market, wallstreetwindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. Wallstreetwindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. Wallstreetwindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. The views expressed by callers, co-hosts, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. Go ahead, caller. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald's girlfriend, she knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination? Go to Amazon.com, enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get the results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book. And it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Mary Baker, in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. The Ocelli.com radio network. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? I don't know how. Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them. In their language, on their level, make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite? How do you make them feel as one with you? Yes, when you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. 
like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia by author Mike Swanson with new documentation never seen before that will open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War by author Mike Swanson. Ocelli.com. Revelation through conversation.